welcome to the latest episode of Colubrid and Colubroid Radio. This is going to be a different kind of episode because Zach's not involved on this one. Surprise, surprise. And our floating guest, Clint Bartley, is, is now the main guest today. So, um, Clint, how are you doing? I'm doing fantastic, buddy. Fantastic. How about yourself, Matt? Good, man. I mean, still not done cleaning cages for the weekend, but... You know, I think that's something all three of us here, including our guest Tom today, um, would recognize with that it's never over with. No, no. But say when you said you're going to, you know, trying to get done for the weekend, I'm like, done. Does that word even exist anymore? Yeah. Done. Huh. So, you know, one of the things, I mean, typically whenever we do these recordings, we kind of catch up a little bit on each other's collections. Um, Clint, I mean, you've got a lot more stuff going on now with the shop. But also, we haven't done a recording since Tinley, and you attended and vended at Tinley, so I thought it might be something to throw out there about your perspective of Colubrid's representation at the Tinley show in March, and maybe some of the things that you came across with. Absolutely. Um, as always, I have a great time in Tinley. I mean, there's so many people that, uh, you know, that, that are out there as regulars and uh, getting to visit, getting to say hi. It's always good for a laugh. And, I mean, the auctions, whoo, uh, adult disclaimer there, uh, you know, for anyone who has not attended Tinley, it is not, uh, the auction is not kid-friendly. So, but uh, it was always a good time. Uh, as far as animals, with this being the March show, um, the, the colubrid selection was light, of course, because I think for the most part, we are all, uh, in, we, we just started breeding, you know? Uh, so it's not until the, the later shows in the summer and even early fall that we see a lot of colubrids really starting to be, uh, be on the tables, uh, in larger quantities. Uh, however, uh, there were, uh, were a few vendors out there that had some nice stuff, um, I'll tell you, it's <laughs> after vending, I I came home and the first thing I said was, ah, I need to produce more Asian rat snakes because that was the hottest thing out there uh, for sure. Uh, from mandarins to Vietnamese blue beauties, those things just flew off the tables. Uh, there were only, I think, three of us that I counted that had... Um, uh, there are more than three that had Asian rat snakes on the table, but in you know decent quantities, there were probably only three, um, and so those were super popular. Uh, of course, there were the things that you would expect to see: the ball pythons, the boas, uh, a lot of the regulars out there. Um, but I think some of the most impressive things for me were some of the the lizard species that I came across. And forgive me, I, I'm not going to remember the names of all or maybe even any, but uh, as I did my lap or laps uh, throughout the, the weekend, uh, I think that's where I stopped the most was, you know, I'd, I'd see a lizard that caught my eye, whether it would be a uh, type of gecko that I hadn't come across before. Um, even there was a species of a knoll that I've only seen once. It's large, very large, and you may know what I'm referring to. I can't recall what it was called, but uh, it was a very impressive animal. Um, I would say overall for the March show, attendance was was decent for Tinley. Um, and I, I think a lot of people went home with some new animals. Um, and so all around, it was a good time. And 
worth attending, worth vending for sure. Right on. Well, that's cool. Yeah, you know, this show, um, March is typically kind of light because it's kind of one of those shows where a lot of people might have leftovers from the year previous, um, especially when we're getting into talking about Colubrid, just because they've been in such high demand over the last couple of years and without having many breeders working with, you know, some of these different species, they've come a little bit light in terms of show representation. Um, you know, talking a little bit about what's going on in my collection. I mean, I've pulled pretty much everything out of cooling at this point in time. Um, I've left some males down a little bit later. Something different that I'm trying this year is just kind of raising up females and getting a couple more meals in them before introducing or taking males out of hibernation. Um, but with all of that, I mean, the cleaning now has begun and the time of work in the collection just continues to grow and increase. Um, but it is interesting. And, you know, Clint, from your saying too, in terms of conversation, you know, Asiatic rat snakes just continue to grow in popularity. Um, we've definitely, I mean, you and myself, we've talked about it before. And it, it's interesting, you know, in conversations amongst some of those people that are keeping some of these different species is we're not seeing as many um, hatchlings as what we would expect, considering how many animals have sold over the years. And I think part of it has to do with while you can keep them, you know, there is an aspect of keeping them right and feeding them properly to increase their fecundity and potential for offspring. Oh, absolutely. I completely agree with that. Um, it, it's, I think that uh, there are individuals too that will get into them because let's face it, the, the Asian rat snakes are just beautiful. I, I mean, naturally beautiful. And so there's a lot of interest in the beginning, but I do think that even with the, the advice, even with, all the information that is out there on some of the more commonly kept uh, Asian species, they people still try to keep them like corn snakes sometimes. You know, species that just can't do that, and either they they perish or they may survive, eat. But as you're uh, as you're alluding to there, I mean, without the right care, they're not going to reproduce, or they're going to produce, uh, or that maybe even it's egg incubation that they're doing wrong, you know, doing that at a higher temp. And so getting kinked animals or dead and egg, things along those lines. So, um, I agree with that statement completely. I mean, they're a little different, you know, it's something that I mention to customers here in the shop pretty regularly, uh, because a lot of first time keepers, it's ball pythons in this area, you know, and not to throw shade on ball pythons by any means. They are a great starter snake. They're easy. Um, but I, I usually tell customers when we get on the conversation of colubrids that I feel that if you keep a variety of colubrids, it makes you a better keeper all around because you have to learn more than just one species, you know, just ball pythons. If, if you're keeping some North America, even if you're keeping a few different species of North American rat snakes. I mean, if you're keeping a subock and you're keeping a black rat snake, you're keeping them differently if you're keeping them correctly, right? You know, if you're taking care of them. So I just think it, that variety really makes us 
better at being a, a keeper of these animals because you have to learn so much more. You have to learn their behaviors. You have to, you're watching their movements. Are they staying on the hot side all the time? Are they staying on the cold side all the time? Are you adapting to that? So um, I, I think that with the popularity growing, hopefully the desire to do it right will grow at that same pace. And I think that previously it really hasn't. Um, get a little stubborn in our ways, so to speak. So, <clears throat> Yeah, no, I, you know, it's very interesting. And I think that's something, you know, today when introducing our guest, Tom, I think he'll have a lot of insight on this too, as well, from some of the different species that he's kept. Um, but how's everything been going at the shop, Clint? Things have been going fantastic. Um, I'll tell you, going back to Tinley, not only was it a very successful show for us, but there were some some conversations and connections made out there that will really really move some things in a positive direction for us here at Metazotics. Um, and there's more organization that's taking place behind the scenes, getting prepped for for this season. Um, the nursery is expanding. <laughs> more rack systems getting put in place to ensure that we can handle. Uh, handle the babies that are going to be hatching. Um, there's new caging that's coming in. I mean, stuff that, I mean, for the listeners, you're probably thinking, oh, shut up, Clinton. Just tell us about the animals. We don't care about any of the other stuff. But for me, I mean, it's super exciting to know that there's, I, I won't say who yet, but there's a particular uh, caging manufacturer and rack manufacturer that really will only distribute to, I a very select few people, I think maybe four or five out there. And we had a conversation and they've now agreed to uh, allow Metazotics to be a distributor for their caging. So, so that's me nerding out for a minute from the business side that uh, I'm exciting to excited to be able to do some things like that. As far as the collection, Matt, as you were, were saying, you know, bringing everything up, uh, we've had, uh, we've got eggs on the ground from several ball pythons. We've got, Confirm locks from uh, several colubrids already. A lot of the black rats, um, kings. I, I actually, uh, side note, side story here, had a pair of uh, cow kings that I put together. They were together for about a day and a half, you know, checked on periodically, no issues. Walked in there yesterday and they were locked mouth to mouth, wrapped up in the, the whole death tug here and it's one thing to pry a snake off another snake when they've got a, a, a mouthful of body, but when each of them have a mouthful of mouth, that was rather difficult. Alcohol on the snouts and everything to finally get them to release. So, uh, just a friendly reminder, kids: if you're breeding king snakes, watch them. Because <laughs> things can go bad. Uh, but everybody lived. Everybody's okay. Everybody's back in their own cage. <laughs> Um, but, uh, yeah, breeding's in uh, full force, man. We had all these storms roll in and you know what that does for snake breeding, snake pairing, you start throwing things together because they love that barometric pressure change. So, Oh yeah, that's the truth. Oh man. Well, what do you think, Clint? Should we jump in for tonight's guest? Let's do it. I'm, uh, I'm pretty stoked for this episode. Awesome. Well, 
So I've known this guest for, oh man, it's got to be eight or 10 years now. Um, doesn't do a lot of social media and nor a lot of posting, which, you know, it intrigues me even more because you never know what's going on in his collection over there. But want to introduce Tom Morello from Tree Dweller Reptiles. Um, how are you doing, Tom? Great, guys. How are you? Good, good. Um, Thanks for having me on. I appreciate it. Yeah, no, this will be a, a pretty cool episode, I think, because, you know, Tom, from our conversations, you've got a lot of history within herpetoculture, um, you know, having dealt with many of the past and also, I mean, let's face it, I mean, some of those uh, chondro keepers tend to lend themselves into colubrid keepers as time persists. Yes, yes. <laughs> Um, I always start out by saying, uh, when people say my name, Tom Morello, I always have to say I'm not the guitar guy. Um, <laughs> usually, um, usually gauge people's age by how they respond. To, if I'm on the phone with somebody and they ask my name, maybe credit card company or something, and there's a big long pause, and I usually say not the guitar guy. Um, but uh, I, I can gauge people's age from um, their music history, from uh, Rage Against the Machine and Audio Slave. So as a reference, but, uh, yeah, appreciate having me on. Um, I'm just a hobby, strict hobbyist. Um, that's probably why I don't have this big presence. Um, I enjoy keeping them. I enjoy working with them. Um, and I, I guess if you do reproduce enough at some point, you got to sell them or give them to somebody. <laughs> so you have to get on there and uh, advertise at some point. So Tom, you know, Typically, we ask um, a couple of series of questions for our guests just to get a little bit of background on them. Um, but what made you start keeping reptiles? Oh, I think um, as most of us, you know, we go back to back to our childhood growing up, you know, when we all started to get that fascination with turtles, frogs, lizards, snakes, um, catching them, watching them. And it's, it's just something that, you know, almost all YouTubers will have that experience as a kid. Um, I can remember going down to the Creek and catching snakes and anything, you know, anything that possibly moving to try to keep and have an interest in. Um, I, I can remember going to Maine in the summers with my with, with my mother's side of the family, our vacations consisted of visiting relatives back in the day, uh, in Maine. And one of my uncles was a waterman, uh, lobsterman, I guess you'd call it. And they had a small house. And I remember in the back they had, uh, I think it was a septic field and he used to throw plywood over it. And, you know, when he'd come back from work, he'd cover it with plywood, I guess, to, 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 to keep people out of it. And I can remember being back there. And what do you think um, around weeds and plywood and septic is nothing but critters. And I can remember distinctly picking up those boards. And in my mind, you know, I was probably 10 or 12 at the time. In my mind, um, it looked like the, the garter snake gatherings in Manitoba, Canada. You know, I'm just <laughs> grabbing, grabbing snakes, putting them in five gallon buckets. And um, I can in the hit and I could still hear him yelling at me in that main brogue. Um, if you fall in there, I'm not getting you out. And, you know, so there I was risking sinking, sinking up to my neck in, in human excrement, trying to catch snakes. Um, but yeah, so it's just, I think just like with everyone else, once, once that spark was lit inside of you, um, it just never leaves. Very nice, man. 
What uh, what would you usually find under there? I heard you say a bunch of garter snakes. I just Maine yeah. is a place I've never never been. So curious, what's some of the stuff you flip? So I was probably very lucky at the time. There's no venomous snakes in Maine. So because when I flip that, um, you know, variety of colors and sizes, and I would just be grabbing, filling up, you know, trying to grab and put them in buckets. Mainly garter snakes um, is what is what I caught up there under that in that area of Maine. Uh, not not too much of anything else really yeah you know, no and you know what it's it's very interesting too because you know in today's urban development you know you talk about all the garter snakes and some of the larger forces that we would have seen them before and it's drastically declined i mean you know with a lot of the development the waterways um some of the different changing that we're doing to some of these different sites you don't see garter snakes in the large numbers that you used to. Yeah, I do. I'm lucky enough to have them. I'm in Maryland, so I'm lucky enough um, where I am in Maryland. I have quite a decent population in my yard, and um, I can find them always in the wood, in the log pile, the firewood pile, uh, every summer. And in larger quantities, even you know, definitely breeding because I find a lot of babies around also. So. I'm lucky where I am right now. And Eastern milk snakes too. I've got a decent population in my area or yard anyway. Very nice. Well, Tom, obviously you're on the show because you have one or two colubrids. Uh, you know, that's, that's how, that's what I'm gathering here. So, so the next question we usually fire at is why colubrids? What drew you that direction? Well, I, you know, probably three decades ago, I started out with, Pythons, mainly. I think the first foray into breeding, keeping and breeding, was with Burmese pythons, and then I went through boa constrictors, um, ball pythons, and then started down the road of uh, arboreals with emerald tree boas, Amazon tree boas, chondros mainly, Um, and probably about almost a decade ago, I, I was down to maybe eight or 10 animals. And I was not that I was disinterested in snakes anymore. I just didn't have the time at at the time to have much more than that. So I started looking online. I knew I was going to have some time and more time in the future. And I was thinking, just looking at stuff, just interested in snake scene was out there. And I, I started down the road of looking at some European keepers and ended up at one point on that European classified i think it's uh terastic classified european classifieds so i started looking at what was what was out there and i saw some interesting species that were advertised in europe that you didn't really see at all in the united states at the time in in any large quantities so that developed an interest in in investigating those and you know i got on some of the european forums and i was seeing how people were keeping them and what they were keeping and at one point I decided, you know what, I think I'm going to get some of those and ended up getting my import permits through U.S. Fish and Wildlife and getting some port exceptions to the airports and making contact with some people in Europe about what I saw over there and wanted. And I, you know, if I was talking to some people in Germany, I had to use Google Translate to <laughs> put my sentences into German if they didn't speak English. And I've dealt with people in the Netherlands. Italy and 
luckily enough, so I, I started importing a few things and luckily enough, you know, I, I, people were honest and I was sending them money and they were sending me snakes and I got them in and mainly as babies and juveniles and raised them up for several years and then started breeding. And that was about the time I, I, I found Matt and, uh, started talking about what he had, what I was interested in. And I went down that road and, and I don't have anything now, but colubrids. Um, not, not anti ball Python. I'm pro colubrid. (laughs) (laughs) As, uh, this kind of take off a cat Williams, the comedian, but you'll have to research that yourself. (laughs) But, uh, yeah. So now I keep colubrids. Um, you know, I, I, I have kind of a diverse collection, mostly I would say all Asians, except for one pair of Applegate pyro (laughs) that I have that I've had for a long time. Maybe I'll try to breed those this year. I don't know. Yeah, no, it's, it's very interesting, Tom, because you know, for yourself, I mean, going down the line of even going for the import export license, you know, a lot of people don't go to that extreme. Um, you know, you and I, we've talked about it, but it's always an interesting portion of it because going to the airport to pick up stuff can always be a little bit interesting (laughs) too. Um, especially going through the whole fish and wildlife connection, um, of opening up boxes and making sure everything's properly, you know, labeled and everything is there too as well. Oh yeah. I, um, that was a great experience going actually just to see the, the behind the scenes imports of everything when you're picking up stuff. And luckily, uh, I, I brought most of my animals in through Dulles in Virginia, because I, it was much further to go to New York for me. So I got a port exception and the investigator down there was very thorough, always inspecting everything that came in. I thought I was in, at one point not in trouble, but I remember um, her opening up the package and she was looking at the snakes and she said, what, what are they, what are they packaged in? I'm like, Pack, what? she goes, what is that medium? And I said, well, it looks like looks like moss looks like sphagnum moss are you sure and i was like uh-oh and i'm like yeah it looks like it so she you know started investigating and then she was like okay that's fine she goes it's not alive you know she's making sure that i wasn't bringing any live plants in other than what the snakes were in and but uh quite an experience to to go through that i don't know that i'll do it again but um but at least i have done it and um going through us customs and us fish and wildlife it's it's a good experience so tom you know even going through some of your collection and your changes in keeping from you know pythons boas um how does the keeping style change when you transition to colubrids well one of the first things of course is temperature um, it was nice to be able to just have room temperature, um, in my mind, starting off, everything was going to be a room temperature, right? You, you know, uh, some of the, most of the Asians you can kind of consider, you know, cold blooded corn snakes, some of them, um, or cool weather corn snakes, but the temperature was the biggest thing. But over time I've noticed that, you know, you can't, you're not just going to keep your room at 72 or 74 and be successful and, and keeping and breeding everything you know there are temperature gradients and with certain species some definitely seek out depending on their gravity or not or um, they'll seek out heat and more heat than you think um, for a short period of time 
Um, so I, I do have, I do allow them some access to some warmer areas and some gradients, which I was surprised some species use more than other. And even in some, as we'll talk about some species, um, the same species, but from different locales will actually use the heat a little differently. Um, some more than others. But uh, I think that's the biggest thing was temperature. Um, you know, a lot of reading because once you, once you go down that rabbit hole, there's a lot of information out there um, in Europe mainly um, about how people are keeping things, but it's not a recipe. You know, I think the ball pythons people have, you know, even when I was breeding, we kind of have a recipe down. It works 100% if you follow it. Whereas I think with some of these Asian rat snakes, people have been successful in Europe with certain recipes and it's worked for them. But if you try it here, it might not work for you. Um, so there's some experimentation still going on with some of the species I keep to, to try to be more successful with them. So that being said, Tom, what does your collection look like today? What species are you keeping? Uh, Dion, of course, laugh Dion's. I have some, um, Chapa rat snake, arch laugh, Bella chapansis, uh, Let's see what else. Now I'm but I butcher Latin names. I'm like I said, I'm a <laughs> hobbyist and I'm trying to, I'll try my best to, to, to tell you what I have in Latin, but Tom, then that makes you my people. Okay. <laughs> yeah. yeah. Um, you know, I should have, God, I wish if I go back in time, I would have taken Latin for sure. Um, but it's, it's funny that you, my wife said something the other day about, you know what AMP and PM stand for? I'm like, yeah, after midnight, pre midnight. She's like, no, and it, you know, it comes from a Latin term, you know, meridius. And I'm like, Oh, great. Latin again. <laughs> so, <laughs> um, but, uh, let's see what else, uh, some kukris. Um, like I said, I have a, just only one pair of the Applegate Pyros. I have Mandarin rat snakes, primarily Vietnamese mandarins, um, some exanthic. Um, trying to think what else I'm picturing my collection now. Oh, rhino rat snakes and uh, green bush rat snakes, Prasinum. So that's, that encompasses about what I have at this point. Sounds like you picked some nice stuff there. Yeah, yeah. Um, and you know, in the I don't know what the future holds. Uh, I keep looking at other things, and some things ca- catch my eye. Um, but room is always of of concern of how much room do I have, um, and how much you know. Time wise, you know, I'm going to be in there every day inspecting, cleaning some cages, feeding when necessary. But um, Room is, is my restriction right now. I'm, I'm kind of designated to one area of the house, and if I encroach much further, it's going to be a problem. <laughs> <laughs> well, and don't forget about breeding the mice too, Tom. Yes, I do have uh, a small mouse colony, and it does help with some finicky eaters that that want some like live hoppers. Or during breeding season, it's nice to have access to to live pinkies to to get the the finicky feeders going and that's that's been you know a godsend having those available all the time rather than trying to you know go to a local pet shop and try to find the right size 
I, that you know, especially you know, if you have one or two snake, that's usually you can find the right size. But when you have a lot more, um, it becomes difficult feeding time for little ones and even some of the bigger ones that are finicky that only eat like fresh killed or live, um, which isn't a lot of, of what I have in my collection. But there are just a couple finicky feeders. Yeah, no, the, having the live connection for some of those aspects i mean it, it's like night and day um you know we we all have those snakes that just seemingly want to have that predation mode of finding and seeking out live rodents and you know seamlessly enough it helps especially when you've got fresh hatchlings getting them going um even you know some animals start off feeding great on frozen thawed and then unfortunately for some reason or another they just instinctively want the live too so having a little collection of uh live prey see- seemingly does help in the in the long run well and i even find that it's i have more animals taking frozen thaw when i've got a box of live in the room so when i'm feeding a room if i've got a box of live with me and i'm feeding frozen thought i get a better response simply because the smell is in the room, you know, of, of the living rodents. So, uh, yeah, having live on hands always a benefit. <laughs> I don't think there's a doubt there. Yeah. The only, um, the only downside to raising rodents is, is typically the smell. Oh yes. <laughs> oh yes. Ammonia so have, galore. Yeah. So you have to, you know, not, not just, you know, snake cleaning days or, or spot checking your snakes every day, you do have to, you do have to deal with a mouse colony, which, you know, adds a little dynamic to the hobby, but, um, nothing overwhelming. So Tom, you know, one of the things I I think, and, and Clint and I spoke about this too, is because we don't see many keepers out there keeping Beones and Arcalafe, we'd really like to, you know, focus on those two, especially for tonight's episode, if that's all right with you. Absolutely. So if you don't mind, um, let's dive into Dion's and talk about them a little bit more. And we'll just kind of go off a little bit of tangent here and there, Clinton and I. Um, but so what pushed you towards Dion's in terms of wanting to pursue them within your hobby, your collection? Well, when I first, you know, over about a decade ago, when I first started looking at them, you know, you originally – you're, you're looking at a species that people have and what may draw your eye originally is color. And we see that with corn snakes. Um, and you know, I, I, the first snake I was interested in was, um, a red variety or orange variety of Dion. So, you know, I, I touched base with the keeper and over, over time you find they name them from, possibly the areas that they they come from so typically the reds will be you know vladis vostok russia from russia i guess and then there's um there's black variety that can be from barnow or mazdok and when i purchased the original dark animals they were they were just called nagrata just a just a black a black um, Dion. So originally it was color and it's kind of like corn snakes to tell you the truth, because if you look at people that are in corn snakes, 
I would say the majority are, are breeding for colors and patterns, but you know, there are the locale aficionados that they, they want their snake to be, you know, Okatee originally caught. It may be from that area, um, Montgomery County. So there are locality specific corn snakes and people really like to, to know where the snake originated. Whereas I would say more than not, people are buying for color and pattern. So originally that's kind of what caught my eye with the Dion were, were color and pattern. And then that can of worms was opened up um, when you start looking a little further into them. So if you look at, the, at American corn snakes, their range is probably the southeastern part of the United States, you know, from the middle of the United States down about a little bit west. If you look at the the area that the Dion encompass, it's gargantuan. It, incorpor- it incorporates China, Russia, you know, Uzbekistan, Turkey. It, it, it just, it's gargantuan. It's thousands and thousands of miles is their habitat. And even, even the two, the two darker species, the Mazdak and the Barnau are on different sides or, or thousands of miles away. One, one is down near Ukraine and one is up in Siberia. You know, you're, you're talking a thousand miles apart, yet they're both dark animals. And I know we, with our discussions, we even talked about um, the, the, the red rat snake. You have a, a dark species from that same locale, the Vladostophic. Um, so it, it's, it's all encompassing and some people I'm sure that they're going to get into them want the locality data. They want where they're from. Exactly. And I don't have that because I purchased mine from Europe. So I purchased them from collectors who said they were from certain areas. And some of those collectors were saying that they were from those areas based upon their physical parents and not because they had GPS data. Um, incorporated from where they were collected. <laughs> well, and, you know, within, you know, Lefe Dion, um, there's, I mean, they are one of the most widely distributed um, rat snakes within Europe, Asia. And it, it is amazing, you know, as you go through and actually look at some of their color pattern, you know, even the, the Vladivostok animals, um, you know, you can go down a whole different rabbit hole with morphs of Dion's because, you know, a lot of people have even gone down the facet of creating new things by crossing some of these different localities, animals that have that, you know, very strict color phase. Um, you know, even with the Vladivostoks with the reds, you know, there's extreme reds, super reds. Um, and when you breed each one of those together, it, it really starts to throw out different patterns and, and colorations that just gets better and better. Um, you know, and it's something that, you know, within the hobby itself here in the States, we, we've really taken that species for granted. Um, you know, Clint and I, we were talking about them too earlier. I mean, when you look at corn snakes, you know, typically you're looking at an animal that has and requires different heating or lighting. And within these deons, I mean, they're like the perfect first starter animal. Right, yeah. You know, I mean, the cooler temperatures, but, you know, even more so the sexual dimorphism between males and females. And, and Tom, I mean, 
from your collection, I'm sure you see it within what you have there. Yes, definitely. Um, you know, both the diversity of colors and, you know, the dimorphism. Yeah, the males are significantly smaller on average um, than the females. And the the variety, like you said, just the red variety, there's – I don't know if the importers are, are putting the names on them or um, maybe some of the collectors, but – you know, when you get a list of some of the importers, I think one, there's an importer in Canada that brings them in and there's literally 20, 30 different names for these, for these color morphs, you know, from hypo to crazing to, and there's, of course, there's T positive, T negative. Um, there's, there's quite a variety of colors in these. And I think that's what people are leaning towards to tell you the truth. Um, when they're looking at these, kind of like the corn snakes. I don't, I don't know if um, you guys might know more than me, Clint, probably, you know, when people are interested in corn snakes, are they, are they mainly looking at the, the patterns and colors or are they, or are yeah. they looking at locale? It's locale is always, I think with any species, locale tends to be a little bit more of a niche market. Uh, and, it, and that's whether you're talking, you know, corn snake, whether you're talking, a rat snake, king snake, boa, anything, you know, a, a locality is definitely much more of a niche. I think the general populace wants something that pops. They like color. They like something that's very eye appealing. Um, and that's when me and Matt were discussing this earlier. And, you know, I, I said, I'm so shocked that these haven't become much more popular and not just because of the colors. We really haven't even touched base yet on their characteristics. Um, I mean, you haven't talked about the care yet, but even size. I mean, so when we talk about an easy snake to keep and, uh, you know, a good starter snake, I'll even say that a um, it, it was the neons the that uh, kind of broke my, my sons into not being afraid of a huffin' puffin' snake. And what I mean is uh, Matt gave us a pair, and so the boys each have one. And uh, my my sons are eight years old. I've got twin boys. And the these little snakes wanted to rattle their tails and jerk their bodies and all that when they were young. And that's what taught my boys not to be afraid of that type of movement and that they could still just pick them up because it was all for show. I mean, these snakes never struck at them, you know, anything like that. But, um, so yeah, you know, as we're saying this on this podcast, I, I want to tell the audience two things. One, if you haven't started Googling these yet, do it. So you understand why we're talking about all the colors and how pretty they are. Um, and number two, why we're saying that these are, would be a perfect starter snake. And we're surprised that they haven't gained uh, a lot more popularity. You're going to learn more of that as Tom talks to you about their care and, and uh, just their overall personality characteristics. So, um, you know, I guess with that statement, Tom, you know what, why don't we uh, kind of explore that a little bit? Uh, yeah. Their care as well on a side note too, what you brought up about the tail rattling. Yeah. You usually see that in, in juveniles. Um, I do have some adults that I don't handle that much. That'll still do that. But I 
did notice that these, if you do handle them, they, they calm down very quickly. They get used to you and they are very curious. They seem to always want to move um, and, and not dart away from you, but move, check things out, look at movement. They're pretty curious snakes and they're easy to handle. Um, they're the care wise. Once they start on food, um, boy, you know, you, you're, you, they're just like a corn snake really, as far as, is their appetite, you know, they'll, they'll eat, they will overeat. So you got to kind of watch that too. They're always ready to eat. Um, and they're easy, they're super easy to care for. And I, you know, some of them in my collection only are a little, the adults, maybe I don't want to say skittish, but a little apprehensive because I, my collection's large enough that I can't handle everything every day. Um, to get used to it. But within a short time, if I did pick one of the snakes, even as an adult, they could get used to me in a very short period of time if I if I took that time with it. So they are a per, kind of a perfect starter snake as far as size, demeanor, curiosity. Um, they're, ju- they're just a great snake. And like you, I'm surprised that uh, they haven't um, garnered a bigger audience than they have yet, I should say. Well, and, yes. you know, you know, talking about sizes, you know, some of the Dion's that I have here in my house, I mean, my males are maybe eight inches long as adults. Um, so that's why, you know, when you start thinking about this species, I mean, for that mom and dad that are looking for something that doesn't get very large, a male Dion is going to be like the perfect fit for them. Mm-hmm. Absolutely. Yeah, I think um, I think they'd be I think they'd be an ideal starter snake for for some people. Um, and like I said, I you know you have to do your research. I I could make a care sheet. I know a lot of people love care sheets because it's it's easy just to read. Hey, I got this. Um, I can read these couple paragraphs and I'll be good to go. Um, but I always encourage people to do their own research. Um, and what I found about some of the species that I have is I would say the Mazdoc seemed to be a little more high strung than the reds. And that is from a very small sample size. <laughs> so that is just what I have. So I'm not going to say, hey, you import these. It could be, it, th- these are more skittish. That's just with the few I have on each, on each side. Um, but, uh, and you know, you can make generalizations, but, you know, when you think of how many millions are out there and, and you know, I have a couple dozen and, and I'm drawing these generalizations from a couple of observations on a couple dozen. So I'm just, I'm at the tip of the iceberg for my observations also. Well, and you know, one of the things you made mention to is some of the lists that you've seen with different color varieties. Um, you know, Sergey and Ilya in Russia are probably two of the largest breeders for Dion. And that's where most of that list comes from. Um, but with that being said, I mean, some of the different patterns and morphs and stuff like that, I mean, it is pretty wild to see where and how that's just grown. But I think even too, you know, Tom, if you don't mind touching a little bit about how you cycle the animals, breeding behavior, and maybe even feeding routine, 
Um, I think it might even give a little bit more structure to some of their other interesting natural history items. Yeah. Uh, as far as, um, cycling, I've, I've only bred them for a few years now and I, I even, I've changed it up this year uh, again. Uh, last year I had some clutches that the eggs weren't viable. There, there were slugs on a couple of them and I do believe possibly my males weren't cold enough. In, in discussion with some of the people in Europe, um, I've heard of some brumations or hibernations brought down into the high 30, which which I don't think a lot of people would would do their colubrids into the 30s. Um, I think most people would shoot for 50, 55 for some of the colubrid uh, brumations. Uh, high thirties might be a little too low, but when I hear that these, these Dion were brought into that level, maybe that makes the males, um, a little more viable as far, as far as having a good clutch. So this year I cooled my males down a little bit lower. I did not get them into the, the high thirties. I would say probably high forties, low fifties where the females, I did not females were in the high fifties, low sixties. So this will be, you know, an experiment this year to see if I have a a better clutch rate and less slugs than some of the females. Um, so that's an experimentation that I'm doing that, you know, just from research of how some people are successful in Europe and in, in Europe, they've been, they've had these and been breeding them, longer than we have here in the United States based upon I, the people I know that keep them. Yeah. I, you know, it's getting animals into the low thirties. Um, I've done it before and I always have a fear of getting stuff that cold. Um, you know, one of the things that I've been trying this year and I think Clint has too, and Tom, you and I, we've chatted about this is I also wonder off of it, if leaving males down a little bit longer and warming females up before the male has any sort of contribution to fertility too. Yeah, that's one of the things my, um, as a matter of fact, I'm always late to the party as far as um, bringing my animals out and breeding. I just, just increased the temperatures uh, the other day on the females and, um, after a couple of days, started some small meals on them, and the males are still down um, into in their in the low fifties at this point. So I'm trying that also this year to see if it. And I don't want to do too many changes at one time because I, I if you're if I'm successful, I don't know you know what change did it. Um, you know, change two mm-hmm. or three, four or five things, and all of a sudden it works. You'll be like, oh hell, what what you know which one of these worked. And and if you start taking one away, which one do you take away and not be successful? So that's always a thought. So, yeah, I did leave. I'm leaving the males down longer. I the females, I didn't cool as much. Um, And we're, you know, we'll see what happens this year. It's it's an experiment to see if I'm I'm successful with 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 this year's clutches. So I want to take a step back for a second because we started talking about breeding. Let's. Let's talk about how you have them just set up. Like, you know, what are, do you have them in tubs? Do you have them in um, caging? What's what's your keeping style look like? 
Um, they're in they're in racks, so they're in the the V seventy, I believe, is what the what the size of the rack. So it's a it's a it's a deep a longer um, rack tub. Uh, they're just on Aspen, and I have a, I did experiment with some substrate called um, Beta Chip. It's a really fine um, kiln dried hardwood. I've tried that. That's worked. I've been successful with that as far as keeping them on it. Um, I see in Europe they use something. I don't know the exact name of it, but I see something that's synonymous with that. It's a fine chipped kiln dried hardwood. Um, but but the majority of what I keep them on are on asp shredded aspen um, with several couple three depending on the size cork bark hides. So they're they're rounds basically cut in half so there's several hides in there and then of course you know um, a water bowl and in the back i do have some supplemental heat on on those and i probably keep that at about 85 on a very small spot and occasionally i do find them using that that supplemental heat so you know when they when they're referred to as cool weather corn snakes, they're not always kept at 72 degrees. Um, they do use that supplemental heat. I think that's an excellent point too. It's if there's anything I'm a fan of for just about any species I work with, it's gradient having, you know, a gradient temperature for them so that they can pick where they want to go when they want to go there. Uh, Cause to your point, Tom, I mean, there's times with a big meal, they want to get a little warmer, help with that digestion. Uh, females that are gravid, uh, see them, same thing, moving towards the heat. Um, even if you have an animal that is, um, that's sick, you know, you, you normally what's one of the first things we do? We bump the heat, you know, right. bump that up. And so, I mean, them having that gradient, a lot of times I think that they take care of themselves you know, better than what we can take care of them if we just give them the tools to do it. So, uh, excellent point on that. 85 surprised me. I thought you were going to say 80. I thought you were going to say you had your, your warm spot at 80. So, uh, 85 yeah, was, it's a, was a surprise. It's a very small spot. So, you know, they can use it and they can, of course, get away from it, more importantly, um, and, and get back to the 72, um, which, which is, uh, which I like. Now it, it's interesting because so when I started looking at the localities of these Dion, I'm like, all right, how how are they kept? How are they kept? And if you if you look at the different areas where they're supposedly come from, the variant of temperatures is pretty extreme. Um, you know, when when you're thinking, you know, Siberia, okay, well, you know, very maybe that maybe they are in the thirties <laughs> remaining for quite a long time. So I don't, I don't think it's going to hurt them as you get down further down um, in Southern Russia, so, South West Russia down, you know, above just above Turkey, you know, is the climate a little bit different than Siberia? Yes. So, you know, and that's the range um, and, and they go through China. And so, as far as the temperatures, I think in my mind, I want to, I don't know where they were collected. So I want to offer that large gradient so that if they're used to that 
and they're going to come out and sun themselves at certain part of the years, they have some warm area to go to. Um, and, um, so yeah, so it's, it's the research on their locality and climate. Like I said, I, I got mine from Europe, so I don't, other than their appearance, I don't know where they were, they were from. So it's kind of an experiment on the temperatures and to see what they like and see what works for them. Cause there isn't a one perfect care sheet for, for Dion at this point. Don't know that there ever will be. <laughs> Do you provide any humid hides? You know, I know you said the cork bark hides. Didn't know if you did anything with any kind of damp sphagnum or anything along those lines. Well, um, I usually when they're going to egg lay, I'll, I'll do dry sphagnum in, moist sphagnum, just to see if they do a preference of where they want to lay their eggs. Because if they're, you know, if they're seeking humidity for the eggs, or if they're seeking dry for their eggs. But as far as humidity, I try to keep my room at about sixty percent, and I haven't noticed not one time a shed problem with them. So with that humidity, I haven't, I haven't felt the need to add any humid hides. Makes sense. All right, well, let's talk about feeding. What are you offering? What's your schedule? Weekly um, is what I'll feed feed them, whether it's a, a, a juvenile, um, a hatchling. I know some people like to feed their hatchlings every three to four days. I, I, I don't ever push. I've never pushed anything to grow. So everything's on a weekly schedule, and I haven't seemed to have a problem with their with their growth rates. It's it's not fast, but it's it's consistent. Um, and I feed them appropriately appropriately sized meals, which would I would say you know the the, the girth of the body. Um, I I have overfed some of the larger females, meaning you know a jumbo mouse, and I'm looking at a lump in it, like kind of throw back to the days when I would feed, you know, 10 pound rabbit to a Burmese Python and seeing a large lump. <laughs> and, you know, for a couple of days, I'm a little nervous about checking on them. I'm like, ah, was that too big a meal? I hope they don't regurgitate. And I look and um, never had a problem with them. They've, they've digested even a larger meal, which is probably, which is good, but I, I don't consistently feed too large a meal. I think one time I, last year's when I fed larger than usual, only because the, when I made a purchase of medium mice, the the mouse, I won't give the name of the company I use, called me up and said, oh, I'm sorry, I know you bought, you know, 600 medium mice, but we don't have any left. Can we send you larges? And I said, ah, sure. <laughs> so I was forced to feed large mice to almost everything I had. Um, and, you know, all this all last summer, I was worried <laughs> Every time I fed, oh, geez, are these too big? But it worked out. Um, they were able to digest them and grow fine on, on those. Um, but I do not try to overfeed large items, and it's usually appropriate size once a week. Fantastic. What, uh, you know, obviously I love when we go into the care, but from someone who's keeping – so many, uh, you know, of the, this particular species, what are some of the behaviors you notice? You know, you, you talked about them being, uh, curious animals. So I'll say that's one of the things I notice is they, they'll often be at the front of their tub watching me when I'm in the room. Um, they're, they're interesting in that aspect, but, uh, 
just if there's any of those little quirks, any of those kind of nuances with this particular species that you've picked up on. Yeah. Why I say they're curious is they'll even watch after they've eaten. And I don't mean immediately after eating. I mean, just in the day, the day after, the day before. They're kind of always watching, um, which which is why I say they're curious. Where used to used to used to a giant Burmese python or boa constrictor that uh, yeah, they're watching you because they're expecting some food. Uh-huh. And as soon as you open that door, once they're fed and full for the next week or so, they could care less about you right. um, once they're full. Whereas these seem to be more active. And, and watching what's going on around them. So yeah, curiosity is one of the, one of the traits I would say they have more than others. Um, and in, you know, I'm, I'm comparing them to everything else I have, which, you know, even, even the rhino rat snakes, you know, will be, will be watching, but most of the time, you know, they're perched down looking for food and these things seem to be a little more curious even when fed. So that's where that comes from. Uh, as far as any other habits that they have, nothing stands out in my mind right now as far as, as something they may do or not do compared to other snakes. So, Tom, you know, going back to some of the breeding behavior and things of that nature, um, do you do anything different for pairing these, the species? Well, I will, this year, when I bring, when I bring the males up, I'll offer them a small, small meal, see if they're eat. I've noticed in the past that I would say majority of them will take a meal where some won't. And if they don't, I immediately will pair those and it does not take very long at all. I mean, sometimes it's just been minutes before they're seeking out that female and trying to breed. So it's not like they've been in their day and have to show interest and, and you're checking on them. Um, if they're ready, you know, they've, they've been together in minutes. Um, and other times, you know, I've checked back in an hour or two or three and they've been locked up. So they're not, they don't seem to be needing a lot of time or, or, uh, push to breed. <laughs> but if they eat, I do allow them one meal. Um, and then I'll wait a couple days just because so that activity of breeding doesn't cause a regurgitation. So they'll have some nutrients and then, then I'll try to put them together, the, together to breed. So in, in terms of this species, obviously they're an egg laying species, is there anything unusual that needs to be taken care of for the eggs? Do they have a, a rather long gestation period or anything of that nature? Well, I've read that they have one of the shortest gestation periods of, um, of any colubrid. I, I haven't seen the rec- the record. I think some people have said they've hatched in 13 to 14 days. There's nothing you have to do as far as, um, you know, preparing for egg laying, you, you can, you can tell that they're going to lay eggs by the movement, the, by the size of the female, really, you can see that she's grabbing. And like I said, I provide a, both a moist sphagnum moss to lay in and dry. I don't think they preferred one or the other. I've had them lay in both. And once they're laid, I 
usually incubate at what you would think is room temperature from 74 to 76. And my hatch rates and days have been about 24 to 29 days, which is relatively short, but not, I haven't seen what some of the records I've read about is as short as 13, 14 days. Yeah. One of the things that I found interesting from um, working with this species is also that the eggs start to turn translucent as they come to the end of the cycle for hatching, um, almost like a window popping up and then the animal comes through. But, you know, I, I think, you know, in terms of the date for days of incubation, um, I've had some, some of them hatch within nine to 12 days. But, wow. but I've also experienced what you mentioned of, you know, the 30 day hatch rate too. What temperature are you seeing the, the nine and 10 day hatch rate? Uh, so those are my days of incubating in hovabators and, uh, still keeping them around 74 to 76. But, okay. Wow. But I, I do think, you know, one of your comments and mentions of, you know, locality animals, I think that plays a role. And, and what you're seeing on some of those too. Yeah. I, I think as time goes on, as the years go on, I'll have a little more to offer. I'm still doing, like I said, the experimentation with temperatures and, um, and I would like to see a better, not hatch rate so much for, but not less slugs this year. I, I, I had two females that I was expecting nice clutches from and everything went along as usual, but they were, they, they weren't viable eggs, and and my first thought was possibly the male. So that's where I'm starting. There's not a ton of information out there on them. If you start doing some research, um, I've actually reached out to quite a few people in Europe and started asking questions. And I think one of the I think one of the I think it was Tula Exotarium in Russia. I, I reached out and asked some questions and they gave me some information on them that with, cause they've been successful in, in breeding them. So I kind of had a stack of paperwork from, from many people I've talked to in Europe. And I would say that they're not all identical. Like if there were a care sheet given out, there's, I don't want to say discrepancies. And if there are changes, most of those are in temperatures that they're keeping Keep keeping them during brumation is where there's some discrepancies up to, you know, 15 degrees as, as far as their, their cooling. So, yeah, and it, they've been successful with them, so I'm, I'm not questioning them. I think it may go back to that locale piece you were discussing earlier, you know, where it's just kind of depending on what uh, what locality they're working with, where that temperature may come into uh where we see that 15 degree swing on from what one person is successful with compared to another. Um, but uh, let me ask you about neonate care. I mean, once you, uh, once you hatch some of these little guys out, what are you setting them up with and, and where do you go from there? Pretty much the same as the adults, as far as the substrate, they're, they're given uh, hides a warm spot in the back, not quite to the temperature of the female, uh, to the adults. And 
I do offer live pinkies at first when they're set up and I'll go through the whole gamut. If, if they do eat those, I'll go to the frozen thought, fresh killed. I have, I mean, I hate to have to say this. I've had a couple in one clutch and another in another clutch that wouldn't eat anything. Um, wouldn't eat frozen thawed, wouldn't eat live, wouldn't eat fresh killed. I tried at night, changing the temperatures, everything. And I'm at the point in my collection now, and I always hate to say it, that if something doesn't eat on its own, it's going to perish. I don't resort to force feeding. And I know people say, oh, but, you know, if you force fed for a little while, you know, at some point it's going to learn to eat on its own and it'll be fine. Mm. Maybe so, but that's not the philosophy I take. So, unfortunately, <laughs> I, I do let some snakes perish. It's the survival of the fittest I look at it. And some people may agree. Some people may disagree. Well, I know you've got two individuals on this show right now with you that do agree. Uh, Matt and I, have, that's something we've discussed previously, and we kind of approach things in the same manner. I mean, obviously, with some of these species that are very uncommon and there's not a lot of information out there, we certainly try every trick in the book, uh, you know, mix up what it is. I mean, now I feeder lizards, you know, anything that uh, we can try to get them to go, but if they're not going to go on their own, it's just not going to happen. So uh, I completely, uh, I completely understand your philosophy, my man. Yeah, and I mean, some people would argue because you know the the rarity or or the value of something, you should try it. Well, you know, I think that's that's almost the, an argument against it. I mean, even like t- two of the snakes I lost this year were uh, red albinos, which aren't prolific anywhere. I don't think in the U.S. and I don't even know if in Europe. So there are albino Dion. And they're usually a yellow or white, whitish colors, but there's not many red or orange albinos. And two of them were, were that. And they, I mean, believe me, I tried, I, I did go the egg route. I went the lizard route. I went, I went every route you could possibly think. And, and I'm, and I'm thinking, you know what? I, I, I don't care that they're, these aren't that well established in the hobby right now. I'm not going to force feed them, try to get them going and have these, be problem animals in the future. So unfortunately too, no, I did, believe me, some of the clutch of course did great. So I have those, but, um, I'm, I'm just very reticent to force feed and anything. Yeah. I think, you know, that, that's something that, you know, we, we've all talked about, but you know, when you really start going down those roads, you know, force feeding can lead to a number of other issues. Um, especially for the inexperienced keeper. I mean, I remember at one time, and I'm sure everyone had it, is one of those pinky pumps. Throw a whole bunch of pinkies in and squeeze it into mush, and I don't, <laughs> you know, yes. nothing better than squeezing a pinky straight through a whole bunch of uh, serrated razors to get into the animal's mouth. But, you know, if if the animal's not feeding, you know, it could be, you know, Tom, like you mentioned, I mean, it might be a problem gene, for instance. It might be something related, you know, that we need to look at for other points of incubation technique or maybe even breeding behavior. Maybe it just wasn't a, maybe the animals themselves were too young when we bred them. You know, there's so many different variables that come into, but I do think, 
the moral and ethical approach to towards it is to, unfortunately, if the animal's not feeding on its own, it's better for that animal to, you know, unfortunately perish on its own versus creating more issues. Um, because like, as you mentioned, you could have problematic feeders in the future and all you're doing is just continuing that onwards within the hobby. Yeah. And the Dion, their, their demeanor is such that they don't, they don't really do well as some snakes do with strike feeding. I can remember back in the day with green tree pythons and mouse tails, you'd have, you know, you'd have green tree pythons that did not want to eat, but you know, you get them mad enough, they'd strike and you get a mouse tail in their mouth and they couldn't get it out and they'd swallow it. And even with the kukris, you know, they're, they're little mean little fellas and gals that when you bother them, they want to bite. And it's easy to get them to strike feed. Um, Dion, their demeanor is not that way. Once once they're bothered, they they want to flee. So if you know if you have a, a juvenile, you're not going to get them to strike feed. So it's really just scenting with with those, and you're just you're just going to make it worse if you try to irritate them to the point where they where, where they strike feed. They, they're, they're more scent driven. I think you probably have, I've had better results with something that wouldn't eat right away with live because it was intimidated or scared by the pinky and they've turned fresh killed and even frozen thawed prior to eating alive. So their demeanor is not such that you're going to, you're going to get a strike feeding for these, this type of animal. So transitioning a little bit here, I definitely want to talk about Archilaphae or Chapa rats, just because within the state, you know, there's only about a handful of people that have successfully bred them, including yourself, Tom, and, and Clint obviously has, and I have. So if you don't mind going into a little detail about those, um, you know, how do you keep Archilaphae? Uh, they're on sphagnum peat moss dampened sphagnum peat moss and under with cork 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 bark hides of course and a water bowls but they're i keep them in a more humid i don't keep them on any type of and i've seen i've seen pictures you know of course if you google that and you do images you'll see a lot kept on aspen um hardwood shreds you'll see um You'll, you'll see them kept on a, a variety of substrates. I found that with their burrowing and the moisture requirements that they like, that dampened sphagnum peat moss from, from Lowe's is what I use. Now, there, I do want to say you got to be a little careful because it dries out and you have to stay on it. Um, once it starts to turn a light brown, you need to spray it and keep it moist because you can have impact patient problems with eating if it's dry. So as long as you keep it moist or I keep it moist, I, I haven't had a problem with them. They are a little more of a headache species, I'd say, only because of the breeding trials that I've been through with them. Um, other than that, they're pretty easy to keep. They eat well. Um, they're kind of a fun snake. They're, they're, 
if you don't handle them much, they're, when you do bother them, they're kind of herky-jerky uh-huh. and kind of move around, and they, and they have a little curl on their tail. They'll curl their tail up and start whipping it around. So they're kind of a neat, neat little snake to watch. Uh, but as far as husbandry goes, I found that they like a humid environment, and they seem to do well in it also. And if you allow them to burrow, they seem to prefer that. I agree with the burrowing, especially. That was one of the first things I noticed. Excuse me, noticed with this species was uh, unlike really any of the others I was keeping. They certainly wanted to get underneath the substrate uh, very frequently, and I found that they seem to do a lot better whenever they are kept on a substrate that allows them to do that uh, with relative ease. Um, so it's and it's not really something I've noticed with really any of the other Asianatic, sorry, Asian species that I work with. So uh, put that note out there, everyone, if you want to keep uh, Bellas, they do like to burrow. Yeah, what uh, substrates do you use for them? Same thing, peat moss. I've also used uh, cypress mulch on occasion. I kind of go back and forth. On I, I, I did a mix with that once, and I did not like that at all. Um, I prefer just one or the other, um, but I do think that their behavior tells me I, I think they prefer the peat moss over the cypress. Um, so, and you're, you're spot on again too on it drying out. I, I think that's why every now and then I'll get a little. Plus, whenever you're working with that peat moss and breaking it up, your entire room is now filled with that dust. You know, you're blowing your nose and blowing that all out. Um, so, I, yeah. I, like I said, I go back and forth. And then after a while, I'm like, I don't really like the cypress anymore on these. And so I'll go back to the peat moss. And, uh, but I do think that the peat moss is probably the best for them. Yeah. If you buy it, if you buy it when it just comes in, I find um, once it's moist, it's easier to moisten up a little bit more. Um, if once it dries out or you get it dry, it's, it's hydroscopic and it is a pain in the butt to get to soak up the water. Um, and, and like I said, once you get it too dry in there, it, it can become, become a problem for, for feeding and them eating. Uh, the only other issue with it is you definitely have to spot clean every day. Cause if you don't, the forward flies love to, bur- to love to breed in the sphagnum moss and you can, get quite a quick infestation of mm-hmm. flies if you don't stay on it. Absolutely. <clears throat> what size tubs do you keep yours in? Same B- B70 B70s. tubs. Gotcha. Yeah. And I do offer, you know, the same hotspot, which they don't use as much. Agreed. And I do keep them lower in my room than, you know, they're th- I, I do have some, computer fans up high and I try to keep my thermal gradient consistent throughout the room, but there is probably a two degree difference from the bottom to the top. So I try to keep them on the lower level, look actually a little bit cooler. Gotcha. Same. <laughs> yeah. Exact same. They're on the bottom of my racks as well. Yeah, I did have at one point, I kind of noticed I had a male a bit higher and I kind of noticed he appeared to be um, uncomfortable I just say that because he was always it wasn't breeding season. He was always moving around, constantly moving, and like he was uncomfortable with the with the temperatures. And you could see it because he would mat down the peat moss, just constantly moving, and noticed that 
was reduced when when with just a two degree difference in temperature, um, kind of kind of burrowed more was more comfortable than at seventy two than it was at seventy four. So I, you know, like I said, I'm just a hobbyist, and I, I keep these things for fun. I like them, and I change things slowly just based upon observations. I try to pull as much reading as I can from from books out there, but there's not a lot on them as far as husbandry. Some locale data, but um, I mainly change things through observation and, and trying to think what the snake may be more comfortable um, just by appearance and what they like doing. And that's I'm luckily knock on wood. I've been a little successful with keeping some of these by doing that. Good time. You, you, oh, go ahead. No, no, no. I was going to ask you uh, how you set up babies. Oh, well, so that goes back to the Condra days. Um, where, <laughs> where, boy, did we have quite a formula for those back in the day? Um, you know, one week um, at, you know, one temperature, you know, 86.5. And then two weeks later, adjusted up. And then the last two and a half weeks adjusted down. I have come to the realization and I've Matt, I've been through the hava baiters. I've been to the junkyard and got refrigerators and gutted them and put my own. I've been through the, through every incubator, even professional incubators. What I use now is a large cooler filled with water with a circulating pump and a fish thermometer. <laughs> I mean, a fish um, heater. And I, I can vary it from 74 to 78 degrees. I try to keep it at about 76. And I put every egg that I get from the porphyraceous, the bamboo rat snakes, everything is in about that temperature and it all seems to work. Nice. Nice. Yeah. There's, there's never just one recipe that works, right? I mean, that's just kind of the, the takeoff of it, but Tom, you mentioned something and I'm curious about it. You said you have some trials that you're looking at doing with your Arcalefe this year, breeding trials. You mind expanding well, a little bit on that one? Yeah, you know, it it, it stems from a, a year ago where I had a female die egg bound, and um, so I'm thinking, you know, it ha- that can happen with any snake. But why did why did that happen? And discussing with you, I think it happened. It happened to either you or somebody that that you know had might perish that had eggs in it. Um, so I started to think why, so was I keeping it too robust, too fat? Was it too, too fat that it couldn't pass these eggs? Were, were, did it not get enough movement? Um, did it not have the right lay site? So, so the first thing I'm doing is, is feeding less. So I'm, I don't want it as and I don't want to say, you know, I look, if you looked at my snakes, you wouldn't say, oh, that's a, that's a fat, that's a fat snake. Um, but I think maybe it carried a little too much fat stores for egg laying. Not sure. So that's, that's one of the avenues I'll look at. The other is more egg laying spots in a, in a gradient of heat. 
and and two so i'll have in the dry end i'll have i mean on the on the cool end i'll have dry sphagnum moss i'm going to have wet sphagnum moss and on the warm end i'm going to have dry sphagnum moss wet sphagnum moss not wet but damp and i'm going to see if there's a preference and and under hides of course so i'm going to see if there's a preference for temperature that may make if they become gravid where they may prefer to lay a clutch of eggs and also have a little bit less size to the animal. I know we've also, and I've thought about discussed age, but um, I, I typically don't breed until they're at least three years old. I know I've read that some people have said they can breed at 18 months, but I wouldn't feel comfortable with the age nor possibly the size at that point. Yeah, I don't think there's any reason to rush these particular animals. Um, I mean, there's already so few people having success with them. Why push? <laughs> you know, it, it's slow and steady, you know, to get there with these guys. Yeah. Uh, what are, what are your, are, are you going to try to breed this year? And what are your recipes? Have you discussed anything um, different that you're going to do or just the same? Well, yeah, so, you know, for me, this species, I usually pair up immediately after I pull them out of cooling. So I've already had um, the trio of adults lock up. And, you know, I I agree with your your sentiment there about overfeeding. Um, This is something I've also talked to with uh, Gregor Geisler in uh, Germany about the keeping of Arcolafe. Um, as, as he is a veterinarian, and he said and made the comment, too, that overfeeding of the animals has contributed, and many people overseas have lost Arcolafe as a result of overfeeding due to egg binding. Um, you know, I have lost a female uh, a few years ago to egg binding, but what was interesting was it was a double clutch, not her first clutch. Um, and she perished off of that, but we, we don't see or hear much in terms of double clutching of the animals, but, you know, with that, that was not with a reintroduction to another male that was just fat storage, but the, the means of which fat develops in snakes, especially creates issues because of the way that it actually, um, populates around the ovarian tract and even some of the different areas where that does become an issue. Um, especially when they're trying to push eggs through and if that's constricting or straining on it um, can be a leading cause towards egg binding. But, you know, I've got my fingers crossed, Um, you know, in terms of some of the things that I do a little bit differently is um, I keep mine on cypress mulch. Um, You know, I was always a big advocate of peat moss, but the dust just got to the point where I just couldn't inhale any more of it or cough any more of it up <laughs> so, so I transitioned towards cypress but I think one of the more important things is making sure that the animals when they are breeding they are ovulating and you know it could be to the point that you know we're missing ovulation cycles too um, I know some people have started to keep archilacte together in pairs um, I don't know if that necessarily helps with this species because they are, they can be a little bit of um, a cryptic species, but also territorial too. So 
So I'm not sure if that really helps in, in terms of that cycle. But, you know, my biggest thing has always been to put those animals together immediately after taking them out of cooling. As far as territorial, you, you've seen that with the um, males? Yeah, or with, with, with males and with females. And then I accidentally once put two males together. Holy cow, that was a bad mistake. <laughs> Have you ever thought of uh, and something I just popped in my head is using the, uh, a male shed in the cage of the female when you put the other male in as far as, you know, spurring that territorial behavior, trying to combat for the female? Yeah, I don't, not put two males together? Yeah, I don't think that would be a bad idea. Um, you know, I, I'm a very big fan of keeping more males than females. And part of that reason has always been to rotate males in and out just to make sure because obviously there is, and this has been proven too, is in terms of sperm competition with males and reptiles, um, where one male might breed but actually have better success with another, with the female breeding with another male after that, um, just to entice it. So, you know, I, I think there may be some just to that. Um, I think the one thing off of that would be is just kind of a fresher shed, right? Because that's when all those pheromones would be really kind of pushing or potentially we can get into the chondro days of rotating females and putting them into male cages and then taking that male out and putting a different male in because th there would be scent trailing too. Right, right. Uh, for me, I actually, I take the same approach typically that Matt does uh, because these are some that I, I get confirmed locks the day I take them out of cooling, uh, you know, immediately. Um, so getting them to, to pair and to breed uh, hasn't really been an issue. This particular year, though, um, I will be giving mine the year off. Um, as I mentioned in previous uh, episodes, I've had some species that just did not handle the, the move very well uh, from a previous facility to where we're at now uh, due to, I mean, it's completely different climate in this building and trying to get it all dialed in. Uh, so I feel that both of mine are underweight at this point, and I just don't want to put them through that cycle. Instead, it's uh, I'm going to let them let them get a little more girth on them throughout this year, and we'll go for it again next year. How do you um, make sure that they're not overfed? I mean, what's your feeding schedule? It's just once a week kind of thing, uh, just like uh, what you guys were mentioning, mentioning earlier. Uh, and I go with either one to two small mice because uh, these are full-grown adults. And by small mice, I'm talking, I mean, medium small, somewhere right in there. Um, and it's they don't have any of the fatty deposits. I had the same thing Matt did. Uh, with a female uh, dying that was gravid, um, you know, with, I don't know what I don't want to say necessarily she was egg bound because I don't think she was quite due to lay yet. But when she died, she had eggs in her, you know, so it could have been, uh, but not positive. Um, so with these animals, these are I've not overfed them. I never power fed these at all. I don't power feed anything, honestly. Um, so I'm not concerned there. If anything, I just I don't like the the size that they're at at the moment compared to how they normally look. Um, I, I'm going to use the word robust, and I don't mean that as in a hefty snake. Just meaning getting accustomed to how these snakes should look. I don't feel that they're at their peak at the moment 
And there's, there's other species I'm doing the same thing with this year because it was <laughs> as much stress as it was on me moving 700 snakes. It was a stressful on them moving 700 snakes. So, um, so yeah, these guys, uh, they're, they're going to get the special treatment this year. What are you seeing um, as far as your research on these is age-wise? Like I know um, what age are you kind of putting them together and what – and I haven't found much on it. What's the longevity? I mean what, how old do these snakes possibly get and still be viable? I'll leave the second question to Matt because he's certainly going to be the one if there's research on that. He would have looked into it. For the pairings, they – in my opinion, they looked like they could have gone at two years, but I waited until their third year to go for it. I, it just seems like with most rat snakes, I'm, I'm much more comfortable when they've got three years in that they will not just have the physical size, but have that full sexual maturity. To I kind of look at it like this. Even if they could have gone at two years, okay, maybe I get two small eggs. If I give her that extra year, maybe we get four to six. You know what I mean? It's just you're going to get a bigger clutch size because you've got a bigger, healthier female. So for me, three years is where I went, and uh, you know it seemed to work out just fine. As far as longevity, Matt, do you, do you know anything on that end? You know, off of this, I think the hardest part is just – the relative scarcity of the animals in the hobby where we don't have enough of a a large sample size. Um, But I would say, you know, from my experiences and a few others, I would say longevity is probably 10 to 12 years would be the assumption that I would make. Um, Now it could be longer, but I'm also taking into consideration breeding, you know, obviously it's a hobby and, and obviously that takes stress away from the animal and also decreases their, their, their life cycle too. Um, but from some of the people that I know that are keeping them, I would say, you know, 10 to 12 years would likely be on average for the adult. Why time you got a 15 year old animal over there? No, no, I don't. I'm just curious. Um, she's cranking out eggs every year. Yeah. Uh, and one of the, one of the things I I don't know, as in most hatchlings, you know, they are more brightly colored. They have more red, more vibrant yeah, red yeah. than. But what I've kind of noticed is I've had a couple that weren't good, um, weren't good feeders. Um, they they grow, but they but they're, you know, they'll miss meals. They're not like some of the other ones. And what I notice is at a certain size, they seem to dark, they get the dark, more maroon appearance to them. Whereas the ones that haven't fed well and remained smaller have kept a brighter color. As in, I don't know if when they get to a certain size and they get sexual maturity, they get that maroon color because it seems, and you know, this is a very small sample size. The ones that haven't grown well and are half the size of the other ones seem to retain more of that brightly colored hatchling color. So I don't know if, you know, at, you know, 18 months, two years, once they get up to a certain size, they do that darkening as, as a sexual maturity. I don't know. It might be just like any other snake that's a brighter hatchling. And as it gets older, it loses, slowly loses its color. 
Yeah, I, I don't know. I mean, it could be something related to hormones. Um, you know, one of the things that we've started to see a lot more people post on are, are some of these different blue snakes, the blue rhinos and things like that. Um, but what I don't think a lot of people realize is how hormonically, like the hormones are driven for some of those colorations and the color aspects of it that really play into it. And I'm sure we're seeing a similar thing here too with Arcolafe as that transition occurs um, just for some of that coloration. Yeah, we used to see that in the, the chondros. You, you, uh, they'd get grabbing and you'd think you'd have a, a blue female one until yeah. she, yeah. she laid her eggs and ate and shed. Yeah. <laughs> She's green again. Yeah. I, I was just going to say, as a, formal con, a former chondro guy, I'm sure Tom can tell us all about hormonal blue. Because they're, to me, that was the species that was known for it, you know, back then. Um, yeah. Because you'd see they, they go grab it, turn blue, and then suddenly they're posted for $20,000. Yeah. Uh, yeah. yeah. <laughs> I, I, I was lucky enough to see some uh, true blue uh, animals that were actually males um, in some of the collections that, that some of my friends had. Really nice, beautiful. I'm still, I'm still a big fan of chondras, but but I'll never have one again. <laughs> uh, I'm with you. I, I would, you know, while on the subject, I was lucky lucky enough to uh, tour uh, Rico uh, Rico's place. Oh, nice! Uh, before he passed, I mean, you know, a sweet, sweet man. And you want to talk about just the pinnacle of chondro collections? Uh, I mean, getting to walk through that back in the day in Chattanooga, Tennessee, that was uh, that was an experience. So, yeah. Yeah, I was lucky enough to um, to hang out with Trooper Walsh during the, the heyday of the Condra days, and Eugene, and, and and I can remember going to the National Zoo with some friends, and Trooper was taking us behind the scenes to the zoo, and we got to see some really really nice sights there. Um, awesome time, and he you know he was at that cutting edge with Eugene as far as you know beginning days of the chondro breeding. So, Tom, you know, one of the questions we usually ask, you know, all of our guests towards the end is, you know, what are your future goals within the hobby and where do you see your collection going? Um, there's, there's a few animals out there. Maybe I would like to work with one day. Um, one of them I, I, I think has been in the U S but only, as an import and that's a, the, a striped striped red striped kukri snakes, which you don't see much of. You see the Browns, um, the Toman islands, but you know, very rarely that's just one of the things I've had my eye on. Um, the other thing I do like, but I probably won't get cause I'll never be into them. Boas again, or the, the what are they? Kandoya Polson, the no, Santa Isabel. <laughs> white ones I, I always had an eye for those but probably will never get those as far as my collection goes um i could probably see nothing in the near future but i can see downsizing just to a few species and going into bioactive habitats so you know expand you, i have a limited room of where i keep these so if i do that the habitats will of course be larger and um, I, I was just discussing at a show recently with somebody as far as all the bugs that you can get for your bioactive setups to make them so, you know, you, you never clean them. <laughs> they take care of themselves. So that's a lot of research ahead. 
Um, something I may do if in the future I decide to trim down my collection to just keep a few of the species, I would like to keep them in the bioactive setups. So that's something I will research and look into over time. But that's that's intriguing as far as all the plants, the bugs, the lighting, you know, the UV, the temperatures, and it's it's just kind of caught my interest at this point. It'll get a little addicting too. I, I mean, it's uh, that's one thing I'll say out here at the shop. It, it's gone from all right, so you know, bioactive seem to be getting popular. Let's look into those a little bit. To now, it, you you build your first one and you love doing it you just want to keep doing more and getting better um it, it grew from that to having bioactives built and ready that people can just grab and go with um to partnering with local uh with a local nursery to provide reptile safe plants you know for the shop and then i found you know being a a breeder for years i love genetics i love colors i love you know just that piece so now isopods have caught my attention. <laughs> and yes. so I, yes. I have a, an insect room that we've now built and put together. And I'm um, a, a whole wall is <laughs> with shelves of different types of isopods. And I never thought I'd get so excited over roly polies, but yeah. here I am. <laughs> you know what I, mean? I was so. at, at a show just, just a few weeks back. I was looking at them and um, it's nice to see that, that, there's different things at these shows now. A lot of isopods. As a matter of fact, one of the things that caught my eye and one of my buddies bought were um, praying mantis, like orchid mantis. Mm-hmm. So somebody had was into and breeding mantis, um, these Asian mantis, and and seeing all the different isopods. So I'm thinking, hmm, maybe that's something I you know I can look into because I know nothing about these bioactive setups and what to put in and what works with another. So it's a lot of research would be a lot of research for me down the road, but something definitely I'd be interested in. Um, and I like to see it actually, cause in your, it seems to be in Europe that has been a trend for a little while. Um, some of those larger setups for their species, they kind of moved away or I don't know if they even ever got into the rack systems, um, as much as we have in the U S but, but I, I do like to see some of those setups in Europe and I, see that trend kind of headed this way from just even a few of the shows I've attended and what's available now. It certainly ups the, the amount of pleasure from, you know, a setup that not just the animal, like, I mean, there's, we have a, a larger bioactive setup on display here in, in the store and have, um, I had a trio of the green bush rats set up in it. And, you know, obviously you got this, beautiful green snake, you know, and they're active. So people would be, you know, walking through and looking at it and we'd start talking. And in that particular setup, that was the first one where the isopods just exploded in that setup had powder orange. And I mean, you could see their tunnels through the dirt, you know, on the side of the glass and they're just all over the place. And I just, you know, I caught myself thinking how funny it was that People are wanting to, you know, oh, these snakes are gorgeous. You know, what are they? I'm like, yeah, 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 they're green bush rat snakes. But look at these isopods. Look how how cool these are. I mean, they're everywhere. I mean, we check that. Let me lift up this cork. Look how many are under here. You know, so it's just, you'll really start to appreciate so much more about your, the entire environment that they're in instead of just the animal that you have in there. Do do you find that the, the, and 
some people were trying to sell me on this, of course, when I was discussing with them. They're like, you, you don't you don't really have to clean anywhere near as much. And no, I don't no. know if that's true or not. It's. I will tell you, when it comes to snakes, you still, depending on what size you have, how many snakes you have in there, and if you've got, you know, really an army of isopods and uh, springtails going on, um, springtails are your main main ones that are going to break everything down. But if you've got things like, a, just an example, a crested gecko, that's like the perfect animal to set up in a bioactive. You'll never have to touch anything in there. You just missed it and feed the gecko and you're done. Um, so I still, I'm, depending on how much of a load your, your snakes are going to put in that environment, uh, you may still need to pluck some of it out, but for the most part, it takes care of itself. Nice. Yeah. I'm not looking for something absolutely work free, but, uh, it's intriguing. Um, and, and it, I, I think just the aesthetics of it mm-hmm. is appealing. Um, let alone the, if it lessened work one way or the other. Well, I want to ask before, you know, before we take off, if you were to dwindle down your collection and reduce your numbers, what is it you'd be holding on to? I would like to keep some Vietnamese mandarins because I'm impressed with the size because I've m- many years ago, I've, you know, raised Mandarin rat snakes and bred them. But when I got into these Vietnamese, they remind me of a, you know, what you'd see in the, the backyard in the day, six foot black rat snake mm-hmm. that large. I mean, a big giant, I just amazed me how they kept growing and growing. And, you know, you pull out the, the, pull them out and you'd be like, I can't believe this is a mandarin rat snake. It's gargantuan. Um, and just, of course, the colors are, are just beautiful also, but the size is impressive. So I like to keep on those. I do believe that if we get the Bella rat snakes established, um, I would like to have keep on those. And past that, I would say, A brightly colored um, the Dion. Some some of the some of the red albinos are quite impressive um, with the with the orange and red in them. So yeah, I, I would just keep just probably a few species. Um, I don't know the numbers. I'm not there yet. I, I like what I have, and I don't, I don't. I'm not dwindling down, nor do I really want to increase what I have. I think my workload is right where it needs to be based upon this and my other hobbies included. Um, that's a good balance at this point. Well, cool. Well, Tom, if someone wants to get a hold of you, what's the best way to get a hold of you to talk about Dion's or Arcalafe or anything else you got there? I would say the best ways you could probably get me get on my Facebook site and message me. That would probably be the easiest one. The tree dweller reptiles and like i said i if somebody does reach out i will try to get back as soon as possible i don't check that site every day i'm not a huge um you know this is a hobby for me pure and simple so you know i will answer as many questions as i can I, i'm not going to hold anything back as far as you know trade secrets because i want to be the one that gets these out there and i'm going to hold back the, the recipe if i if i find something that works and it's worked for me i will gladly share it right on and Clint if someone wants to get a hold of you uh, you can find me at uh, Metazotics on Facebook or Clint Bartley 
um, metazotics at gmail.com, or you can check us out on our website, metazotics.com. And if you need a bioactive enclosure after all this conversation. <laughs> on sale until Saturday. Yeah. <laughs> Get some bugs. Yeah. And if you need to get a hold of me, uh, best way is uh, Sarpamitra on either Facebook or Instagram. And again, uh, we want to thank the NPR network for being a part of these wonderful podcasts that are all available um, on iTunes or Spotify. Um, definitely check out all of the other ones out there. There's some really good information out there. Thank you again, and we hope you enjoyed this episode. Thanks, guys. Appreciate it. <laughs>